This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we begin, Olivia, as always, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? I'm doing good. I went out for my first run since the marathon. It's been too long, literally too long, but I'm doing good. How are you? I am good. We picked up Millie from the babysitter and went out and got ourselves some Mexican for dinner and had a nice little family night with, you know, my wife and the kid and the in-law. So it was nice. It's been a good night. Good. I could eat some Mexican food right now. I ate way too much and this podcast is going to be a struggle. So if you're listening, just keep up with me. I apologize (laughs) if I start to slow down at any point. I usually keep you starving. You don't usually eat till we finish. No, I couldn't do that. I'm back on my intermittent fasting. So this was like my one meal of the day and I went to town on it. So I'm going to try to stay awake. If you hear me snoring, just make sure you're yelling in the microphone and I will wake up as soon as possible. (laughs) Well, why don't we just jump right in? What you got for us this week? Yeah, this week we're actually going to be talking about the vampire of Sacramento. And I was just curious before we jump into it, have you ever heard of this case? It's a very intriguing name. So I didn't know if maybe this was on your radar or anything like that. I have not heard of this one, but I like vampires and I like true crime. So I feel like I'm going to like the vampire Sacramento. Yeah, I heard Sacramento's a nice city, so it might be yeah. loaded with things that you like. Yeah. Well, this week we are going back in time to discuss this case out of Sacramento in the late 1970s. Now, it's important to know that at this time, Sacramento was viewed as an extremely safe place. It was a sleepy government town of roughly 250,000 people and still had the feel of a small town. Doors were left unlocked and kids would run around neighborhoods unsupervised, only returning when the streetlights came on. Now, on December 29th, 1977, 51-year-old Ambrose Griffin was helping his wife bring in groceries from the car. While walking from the driveway to the front door, a car passed and a shot rang out. Ambrose was shot in the chest. Homicide detectives were assigned to the case but were immediately baffled. There was no obvious suspects and the murder seemed completely random. 
A background check was done on Griffin, and he had no enemies or anyone who would want to see him hurt. Because of this, there was little evidence to go on. However, the following day, a few 22 caliber shell casings were found down the street from the home. Additionally, police found that other rounds had been fired into random homes in the neighborhood just days before, but luckily no one was injured. Police initially believed that they were dealing with what was called a thrill kill or someone who wanted to experience what it was like to take a life. But authorities had no way to expect the wave of horrific violence the city was about to experience. In January of 1978, Sacramento police began receiving calls about a prowler in the area. In one instance, the man was discovered inside a home and chased away. The homeowner found that the prowler had urinated in a drawer of baby clothes and defecated on a child's bed. Then, on January 23, 1978, there was another murder. And by this point, the killer had evolved well beyond a drive-by shooting. 24-year-old truck driver David Wallen had returned home from work to find a horrific scene. His wife had been murdered. As police entered the home's front door, they noticed garbage scattered across the floor. It appeared the killer may have ambushed the victim at the front door as they were taking out the trash. They then noticed drag marks and blood leading into a back bedroom. There, laying on the floor, was the body of 22-year-old Teresa Wallen. Wallen had been shot, sexually assaulted, and mutilated. Her clothing had been pulled up over her chest, exposing her breasts, and her legs were spread with her underwear removed. Her abdomen had been cut wide open, and it seemed that the internal organs and intestines had been moved around. But most heartbreakingly, Teresa Wallen was three months pregnant. Not only did the killer take her life, he also took the life of her unborn child. Police immediately began looking for evidence and recovered 22 caliber shells at the home. As they continued to search for clues, a paper yogurt cup was found with bloody fingerprints on it. It appeared that the killer had used the cup to drink Teresa Wallen's blood. Police had never seen anything like it, and they believed that they were dealing with a psychopath. So, Olivia, before we go any further, as I was doing this research, it was extremely graphic, and I just want to kind of pick your brain. What are you thinking? Where are you at so far in this case? Well, when you first said they found a paper cup with bloody fingerprints, I was just thinking, okay, he just drank from the cup with like blood and left evidence behind. But then you said it appeared that they had drank her blood. So then I just went, what the heck is this? Yeah, and the killer actually wore gloves so they could see where somebody had been holding the cup. But because of gloves, Mm -hmm. there was no discernible fingerprints. Okay, yeah. It was just a bloody cup he had put her blood in and drank from. Yes, and hearing some of the detectives talk and some of the research that I've done, they were just talking about how shocking and how they had never seen anything like it, you know. And you could kind of hear the pain in their voice as they went back and relive those memories. One detective, his name was Wayne Iris, was talking about how there was a picture taken of Teresa Wallen by the crime scene photographer. And that picture like lives in his brain rent free since then. Like he can close his eyes and see it at any time. Oh, that's so sad. And just, I mean, I want to hear more about this. It's, I think this one's going to really be a, a dark one. Yeah, definitely. Now, in 1972, the FBI had begun studying and classifying serial killers. And if you're familiar with criminal minds like the BAU or the Behavioral Analysis Unit, this was essentially the start of that in 1972. The murder of Teresa Wallen fell under the category of a disorganized killer. Now, according to Colonel Robert Ressler, who is a former FBI profiler, these are types of crimes that don't appear logical. They could also reflect poor planning or just be rage-driven. The exposing of the breasts and the genitals and the movement of the internal organs suggested that the killer may have had some type of depraved curiosity, and police feared that he would strike again. 
Detectives began going door to door in the neighborhood, hoping someone may have seen the suspect. One neighbor told police that he saw a white male walking across his porch, heading towards Teresa Wallen's home. As the community became aware of the horrific murder, fear began to grow. And because of this, a task force was created to hopefully stop the killer before he could strike again. But on January 27th, just four days after the murder of Teresa Wallen, their worst fears would come true. Police had received a call that three more bodies had been discovered. And when they arrived at the home on Marywood Drive, they knew immediately they were dealing with the same killer. Upon entering the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Maroth, they discovered the body of her 51-year-old neighbor named Daniel Meredith. He had stopped by to check on her as she was home with her 6-year-old son, Jason. And that evening, Evelyn was also babysitting her 22-month-old nephew, David Ferreira. As police went through the home, they found Evelyn's body in the back bedroom. Maroth had been murdered and mutilated. And like Teresa Wallen, her abdominal cavity had been cut open. It was also determined that Evelyn Maroth had been sodomized and semen was present at the scene. Now, as if this wasn't shocking enough, police then discovered the body of Evelyn's son, Jason, on the other side of the bed. He had been shot in the head. In the bathroom, the tub was filled with bloody water. But most terrifying was that 22-month-old David Ferreira was nowhere to be found. When police learned that Evelyn Maroth had been babysitting the boy, they immediately began to search. The community also joined in to look for the missing child. Like the Wallen and Griffin murders before, this crime seemed totally random. And because of this, there were very few clues and the terror in the community continued to grow. Again, police canvassed the neighborhood hoping someone may have seen the killer. Multiple people reported seeing a roughly six foot tall man with long blonde hair who seemed to be in his 20s. He looked scraggly and emaciated and was wearing a bright orange winter coat. Some neighbors even reported they saw the man peering into homes in the area. A composite sketch of the suspect was created and then released to the public. So Olivia, before we keep going, we've had this shooting that seems completely random. Then Teresa Wallen is found, murdered, mutilated. She's three months pregnant. In this case, not only is another woman murdered and her abdominal cavity open, but her neighbor is murdered. Her six-year-old son is murdered. And now there's a missing child. So, you know, as we go through, where are you at with this? Well, right now, I think if police are suspecting that all these crimes are being committed by the same person, they are getting progressively worse with each crime they're committing. And it, you know, just started out with the shooting right outside the house and then now taking the life of a woman who was three months pregnant and then moving on to killing basically an entire family and now kidnapping a child. Yeah, it definitely seems like each situation is just escalating, escalating, escalating. And again, as I was doing the research, I'd never heard of this case before. I was actually looking into somebody else when this case popped up and I was like, oh man, this looks really interesting. So I kind of bailed on what I was going to do originally because this one set its hooks in me so deep. And then as I was going through, I was like, man, I don't know if I made the right choice because I'm having a really <laughs> hard time reading the details of what happened. I have an idea, I guess I should say. I have an idea of where I think this is going, and I really hope that I'm wrong, but I'll let you know at the end if it went where I think it's going. I definitely want to pick your brain at the end of this because I don't think anyone has an idea of where this is going if you're not familiar with this case. And like I said, it gets really dark. So super interested to see if your brain is already there because I can tell you mine was not when I was doing the research. Well, I hope it's not already there because I don't want to be considered really, really dark. But I think I have a, it could be a detail in the case. Yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm like, how dark of a person is Olivia? She predicted this whole thing. <laughs> I, I knew this from the get-go. 
That's what I would have done. (laughs) 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 Keep going. Keep going. Tell me more. So after this composite sketch was released to the public, police finally caught a break. A woman had seen the sketch of the suspect, and it looked a lot like a man that she'd gone to high school with. During their time in school, though, he looked much differently. I don't know about you, John, but if I was watching the news and I saw the composite sketch come across, sometimes I just wonder how people can like look at these sketches and be like, oh, I know that person. Like, I feel like they're similar, but like in the back of your mind, you wouldn't be thinking about someone you know committing a crime. So I just don't feel like that would ever be like, oh, that looks like such and such. I bet you they did it, you know? Yeah, and what I believe happened going through the research, because some of the articles said one thing, some of the articles said another, but Colonel Ressler, who we mentioned before, talking about these murders being what they call disorganized, he was an FBI profiler who basically came up with a profile of this killer and said, you know, he's probably disheveled, probably extremely thin, probably not taking care of himself and kind of gave like a, a breakdown of personality traits. And then I believe they released that with the sketch. So I think it was that description plus the sketch triggered something in this woman's brain. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. Now on the day of the Teresa Wallen's murder, the woman who called in the tip actually ran into this man at a local store. Detectives questioned the witness, and she also shared that the man was wearing an orange-colored winter coat and seemed to have blood on his hands. The man matched the sketch and the description to a T, and his name was given, Richard Trenton Chase. Richard Trenton Chase was born on May 23, 1950 in Sacramento, California. He grew up in the typical 1950s dysfunctional family. Now, there was a lot of arguing and likely some physical abuse, but according to forensic psychologist Dr. Helen Morrison, Due to the culture in America at this time, that wasn't out of the ordinary. Physical abuse of children was common in the 50s and looked at as a normal form of discipline. Now, at a young age, Chase had begun torturing and killing cats. Now, according to professor and criminologist David Wilson, this is actually more common than we think with children. However, Professor Wilson has said that most children develop a conscience through their relationship with animals, and they realize that they are hurting the animal and that behavior will stop. But with Richard Trenton Chase, that conscience never grew and the behavior continued. In school, Chase was able to present himself as a, quote, normal, well-kept kid. By the time he reached high school, he began drinking and experimenting with drugs. This included large amounts of marijuana and LSD, which was a popular recreational drug in the 1960s. Around this time, Chase also began suffering from erectile dysfunction. He was unable to get aroused in the presence of a woman, and because of this, he wasn't able to maintain a relationship. Chase saw a psychiatrist and was told that the root of his issue was caused by either repressed rage or mental illness. It would later be determined that Chase had an aversion to conventional sex and could only achieve arousal and orgasm through violent or disturbed acts. But Chase, knowing that erections are caused by blood flowing to the penis, believed that using blood from an external source may help him to fix his issue. By his 20s, his behavior continued to grow more and more erratic. Chase believed that his mother was attempting to poison him. He claimed to have bones growing out of the back of his head. Additionally, he believed that his pulmonary artery had been stolen and that his stomach was upside down in his body. Chase came up with some truly bizarre methods to alleviate his imaginary illnesses. After accusing his mother of trying to kill him, his father purchased him an apartment. It was in this apartment that Chase would capture, kill, and devour small animals. He would eat the meat raw. Chase would blend the entrails to make smoothies. 
He believed that consuming these animals would prevent his heart from shrinking and causing his death. In 1975, Chase was involuntarily committed to a mental institution after being taken to the hospital for blood poisoning. It was discovered that he had injected rabbit's blood into his veins. Now, Chase escaped that institution and returned to his mother's home. He was again apprehended and sent to Beverly Manor, an institution for the criminally insane. While there, Chase would share his fantasy about killing rabbits. He was once found with blood smeared all around his mouth. Staff at the institution discovered that Chase had managed to capture and kill two birds from the bars in his bedroom window. He snapped their necks and drank their blood. The staff at the institution began to refer to Richard Trenton Chase as Dracula. Now, in 1976, after undergoing several treatments, including psychotropic drugs, Chase was deemed to no longer be a danger to the community. He was then released into the care of his mother. Now, at some point, Chase's mother decided her son didn't need to be on the anti-schizophrenic medicine he was prescribed and began slowly weaning him off of it. And again, his parents put him up in an apartment. He continued to capture and kill rabbits, cats, and dogs, and again, drinking their blood. On occasion, he would kill and eat his neighbor's pets. Chase also stopped caring for himself. He wouldn't bathe or brush his teeth. He had stopped eating and dropped to about 145 pounds. And I just want to pick your brain, Olivia, like as we're going through and we're kind of outlining what his childhood has been like. And I'm really curious to see if you thought it was going in this direction at all. I was thinking along the lines of what happened to the 22-month-old that went missing based off what we had talked about before of like drinking of the blood. And I think now after hearing these details of his formative years of how literally mentally sick he was, I think I'm right. I'm going to be right when it comes down to it. But um, this is this is intense. This guy's got a serious, serious mental illness. And for his parents, when things get rough, they put him in an apartment. And he has a mental breakdown. This guy needs to be institutionalized. Well, if you can believe it, things actually get worse. Oh, (laughs) okay. Let's keep going. Now, around the same time, Chase developed a fascination with firearms and he bought several handguns. He also became obsessed with the Hillside Strangler serial killer case. And if you're listening, you're not familiar. The Hillside Strangler was another serial killer, actually a pair of serial killers that were happening in the area in the 70s as well. He believed that both himself and the Strangler were part of a Nazi-slash-UFO conspiracy. One day in 1977, Chase rang his mother's doorbell. When she opened the door, she was greeted by her son holding a dead cat in her face. Chase threw the cat to the ground and proceeded to rip its stomach open with his bare hands. And while screaming, he smeared the animal's blood all over his face. His mother calmly went back inside the house and closed the door. She never reported the incident. This man needs to be institutionalized. A hundred percent. As a parent, and you know, my kid's only four, so I don't think about, you know, these crazy mental illness things happening down the road, but heaven forbid, right? Like that were to happen to me. My first thought would be like, my child needs help. I'd be calling everyone under the sun to be like, what kind of help can I get them? And I don't know if this is just because of the time that it took place, but they were very much just like, maybe it feels like maybe ignore it and it'll go away. You know, yeah, I mean, that's definitely the time when people just didn't talk about mental illness openly and people didn't talk about, you know, what was going on. And um, I think that's just the generation where people just swept everything under the rug and everything was hush hush. And unfortunately, I mean, this guy is sick. Yeah, it very much seemed like what went on behind closed doors was like our business and it doesn't need to be shared with anybody else. Yeah. And it's probably like the situation where like, yeah, you know, Richard down the street, he's not quite right. 
But, you know, no one ever says anything. Right. Now, in August of 1977, Nevada State Police found Chase's Ford Ranchero on a sand dune near Pyramid Lake. Inside the vehicle were two rifles, a pile of clothes, a bucket of blood, and a raw liver. When Nevada police located Chase, he was naked and screaming in the sand. He was drenched from head to toe in blood. When questioned about where the blood came from, he told police that it was his and claimed that it had seeped out from inside of him. Chase was arrested and the blood was tested. However, it was determined to be cow's blood and Chase was subsequently released. Olivia, you know that I'm a girl dad. Of course I do, John. You have an adorable four-year-old. That's right. And I have to be honest, I haven't always been great at picking out the cutest outfits for her, but I have found the solution. Now what's that? Great Lakes Kids Apparel. From dresses, pajamas, raglan tees, rompers, and more, Great Lakes Kids Apparel has everything, and my kiddo loves their clothes. But aren't kids' clothes really expensive? And they wear them out and outgrow them so fast. Well, that's the best part. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes. So no matter how hard your child plays, they last. In fact, I have to fight my daughter to take them off long enough just to get them into the wash. That sounds awesome, but do they take forever to ship? No way. Great Lakes Kids Apparel is based out of Ohio and offers fast shipping, usually within two business days. Plus, they offer free shipping on all orders over $50, and you can sign up for their awesome rewards program and earn GLK bucks. Wow, John, that sounds like I need to send out some gifts from Great Lakes Kids Apparel. How do I check them out? All you have to do is head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description to start shopping today. Again, that's GreatLakesKidsApparel.com. And don't forget to use the promo code LOCKS at checkout to save 20% off your first order. Now, having a suspect, police ran a background check on Richard Trenton Chase. They found that he had multiple run-ins with the law, including the incident at Pyramid Lake. Police also learned that Chase had a 22 caliber handgun registered to him. Using the address that was found in the background check, police knew that they needed to speak with him. They believed they had their man and emotions were running high. Again, David Ferrier was still missing and authorities feared the worst. On January 28th, police arrived at the apartment on Watt Avenue. They first made contact with the manager of the apartment complex who confirmed that Chase was living in Unit 15. They knocked on the door several times, but no one answered. Now, next to apartment 15 was a vacant unit. A detective entered that unit and put his ear to the wall. He could hear movement inside of Chase's apartment. They were kind of stuck because they didn't have a search warrant or an arrest warrant, so they couldn't go ahead and force entry. Because of this, the detectives took new positions and called into their police chief to see how they should proceed. Richard Trenton Chase believed that the detectives had given up and actually left. So as detectives were standing around in different parts of the apartment complex, awaiting word on how they should proceed, Chase emerged from his door holding a bloodstained box. Detectives immediately noticed Chase and Chase noticed them. They pursued him and a struggle ensued. Detectives had to be careful because Chase was carrying his 22 caliber handgun on his hip in a holster. Detectives held him at gunpoint and demanded that he quit fighting. Eventually, they managed to arrest Richard Trent Chase without a shot being fired. Now, once he was detained, police entered Chase's apartment, and what they found was truly shocking. Do I want to know? I don't know if I want to know. 
I feel like you want to know, right? We're going through the case. Like, I mean, I have to know, but I don't know if I want to know. I need to know. I have to know, but I don't know if I want to know. But go ahead. Olivia, every <laughs> surface in the home, the couch, the kitchen counter, the sink, the carpet were all covered in blood. They found jars of strange looking substances in Chase's refrigerator. They also discovered the blender that Chase would make his entrail smoothies in. But 22-month-old David Feria was nowhere to be found. Detectives now had the task of questioning Richard Trenton Chase. In the initial interrogation, Chase was quick to admit to killing dogs, but refused to admit to any of the grisly murders. However, detectives seemed to notice that he did seem particularly interested in the crime scene photos. Now, at this point, the prosecuting attorney, Ronald Tocherman, was brought in for the second round of questioning. During these interrogations, Chase seemed delusional. Again, he spoke of conspiracy theories, claiming that Nazis and the Italians were out to get him. As detectives and prosecutors push, Chase requested a lawyer, and it would be almost two months before the body of David Feria was found. In March of 1978, a caretaker at a local church less than a mile from Chase's apartment found a cardboard box sitting on the side of the building. When the caretaker opened the box, he discovered the body of a small child. The body was badly decomposed and the head had been removed. But all the remains, including Faria's clothes, were inside of that box. This would be the sixth and final confirmed victim of Richard Trenton Chase. Okay, so let's circle back to what my theory was. I'm not completely wrong, but I'm definitely not right. I kind of thought that since we were talking about a vampire, I thought he was going to, you know, that he probably killed these people and then kidnapped the little baby to kind of keep as his little blood packet where he would like probably drink his blood here and there, but not be as gruesome as, as he actually is. Yeah. And I think as we go through the trial, like we're about to, like I said, this was very hard. I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I have a very hard time when it comes to cases involving children, especially a child who is not even two years old, right? And as we go through the testimony of the trial and things like that, it was just very hard to get through. Going into this case, I was interested to get your take on it because you know I'm somebody who doesn't really have a hard time with a lot of the stuff that we cover. And this one, I was like, this is sinister dark. Like this is like, I think one of the darkest cases we've probably done so far. Yeah, I think this one definitely beats the Willie Pigton, the pig farmer case. That one made me extremely queasy. That was the one where, you know, he was grinding up human flesh and serving it to his friends. So this one's kind of on that queasy. I feel like my face has just been sour this whole time. So this one's this one's pretty uh, gruesome. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think this one definitely takes the cake over Willie Pigton for sure. 100%. Um, because with Willie Pickton, part of it seemed like it was just a convenient way to like get rid of the evidence yeah. where this guy is like actively, I want part of my victims with me and inside of me, which is just crazy to think about. Now, Richard Trenton Chase did trial for his crimes in 1979. He entered an insanity plea and his attorneys hoped that he would be found guilty of six counts of second degree murder. Their case hung on Chase's history of mental illness and the lack of planning pertaining to the murders. If they could get the second-degree murder conviction, this would help Chase avoid the death penalty, and he would potentially be sentenced to life in prison. However, prosecutors argued that Chase knew right from wrong at the time of the murders and therefore was not legally insane. They also argued that the fact that Chase wore rubber gloves was an indicator that he in fact knew what he was doing. 
On the stand, Chase admitted to the murders and drinking the blood of his victims. He also admitted to decapitating 22-month-old David Feria to get more blood. What I also found was very interesting and probably the most terrifying aspect of this story for me is that Chase stated that his victims were chosen by whose door was unlocked. So if you showed up at your house and tried to open your door and your door was locked, that was a sign to him that you were not supposed to be the victim. But if you were unlucky enough to have not locked your door, that's when he would decide to come into the house and essentially murder anyone who was in the home. I don't think I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. Yeah, I definitely agree. This is one of those cases that we've talked about before. It's the home invasion, right? That terrifies me. And then the idea that the victim was based on a flip of a coin, right? Like it's a 50-50 shot if your door is locked or if it's not. You know what I mean? Like Teresa Wallen was going to take out the trash. If he would have showed up 10 minutes later, five minutes earlier, would that door have been locked? You know? And it's the randomness. Just you don't know who's lurking on the other side. I know we'll talk about it more in the deadbolt test, but it just, it really got under my skin. Yeah, this one's tough. It really is. Now, on May 8th, 1979, Richard Trenton Chase was found guilty of six counts of first-degree murder. His defense attorneys requested a clemency hearing, but the presiding judge ruled that Chase was not legally insane. Chase was sentenced to die in the gas chamber, and while on death row at San Quentin Prison, he was a feared inmate. Due to the graphic and bizarre nature of his crimes, other prisoners wouldn't dare get close enough to harm him. However, they would encourage him to commit suicide. And to me, I think this speaks volumes because there is that whole thing, like if you do something to a child, if you hurt a child and then you end up going to prison, typically you are being gunned for in prison, right? Like, Yeah, they always want to hurt the people who hurt children. Yes. And so the fact that this guy was so off of the rails that no other inmate in there would even think about like speaking to him or getting close to him, I think just speaks volumes to how grisly these crimes were. Now, during his time in prison, FBI profiler Robert Resler would continue to interview Chase. During these interviews, he shared his conspiracy theories, again, involving Nazis and UFOs. Chase admitted to the murders, but said that he only killed because he had to do so to stay alive. On December 26, 1980, a prison guard doing his normal rounds noticed Chase lying awkwardly in his bed. He was not breathing. An autopsy later determined that Chase had committed suicide with an overdose of doctor-prescribed depression medication that he had hoarded over his last few weeks. Now, even though this case took place well over 30 years ago, the vampire of Sacramento and those grisly crimes continue to haunt the city. So that's this week's case. I know you said you had a lot of thoughts. Lay them on me. Where are you at? I have a lot of emotions, I think. And I think that this case all the way around is just sad and devastating. I feel sorry for Richard, and I feel sorry for the victims and their family. I think that this is a true example of where mental illness is not treated appropriately. I think it's a case of Richard's parents failing him. Do I think he knew better? Probably so. I mean, he knows right from wrong, I'm sure. But I think in his mind, there's a whole nother world happening. And he was fed into his delusions and his either auditory or visual hallucinations. And when it keeps talking about him going back to the UFOs and the Nazis, like he was living in a completely different world than we were. And unfortunately, it a lot of people had to die because of that. Now, I don't know what went wrong when he went down this rabbit hole of killing rabbits and eating their organs and drinking their blood and 
doing all of that and how that progressed to murdering people? Like what was, was something in his head telling him that he needed to go find a pregnant person? Or did he even know she was pregnant at the time? I feel like he probably did because he gutted her stomach. But I just, I think this is a true story of severe, untreated mental illness and schizophrenia. I mean, I, I just, I'm kind of beyond words. And then I just feel like the deaths just got more graphic and gruesome. And he just kept whatever was happening, whatever war was going on in his head, just kept getting worse. That's kind of how I'm how I'm taking this. Yeah, and I definitely agree. And I will say, I don't believe that he knew anything about Teresa Wallen. I don't okay. think that he was stalking her. There was nothing in the research that I found that indicated that he knew anything about her. Okay. I think she was just a victim of opportunity, right? Like the door was unlocked. Yeah, I can get in this house and the abdomen cutting and playing around with like the internal organs and the intestines. He also did that with Evelyn Murroth. So it's it's this compulsion the same way that he would kill animals and drink their blood. Like this is a compulsion that started with animals and now has moved on to humans. And I will say, right, I'm not sympathizing. No, 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 no. Richard Trenton Chase. And I know you're not either. I know exactly what you're saying. But this is definitely a case of mental illness not being treated correctly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like his mother weaning him off of those anti-schizophrenic drugs. Like if he would have stayed on those, would any of this ever happened? Would he have been a productive citizen? Would he have destroyed the lives that he did? And then the ripple effect outside of that, you know, all these people were, you know, brothers and sons and mothers and sisters and daughters. And when their life is taken, it's not like it just ends there ripples out, you know? Yeah. And David Wallen, you know what I mean? Like he left for work one day with a wife and a soon to be father. And he came home from his job and all of that was gone, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, again, it's not being sympathetic for him, but it's just, it feels like it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy of his illnesses not being taken seriously or not being handled in the way that they should. So I I 100% agree with you there. Yeah. Okay, definitely. He's definitely in the wrong. He's 100% guilty. It's just, it's just devastating all the way around for everybody that's involved. Yeah, and I think these are some of the hardest cases that we do sometimes where it's like you can almost pinpoint it down to like if this one thing would have been different in this person's life or if they would have, you know, had a mother who called when you were swinging a dead cat on the porch. You know, like if your mom would have called and turned you in at that point, like would any of this happen? And I think that's what makes it so hard is just that like, oh, man, if just one or two things would have been done differently. The whole course of life would have been different for everyone. Yeah, we'd never be talking about this. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? We wouldn't be doing a podcast on this particular case. So, yeah. Well, I think I know where you're going to fall, but I have to ask you when it comes to the deadbolt test, scale of one to 10, where are you falling? I am at a 10. I am at a 10 for many reasons. First reason being that this guy picked his victims based on their doors being unlocked. And I was telling someone today about our podcast and was saying, you know, you know how you go to the door after you watch something scary or you hear something scary and you check your door and then you don't remember if you did it, so you check it again and you check it again and you just kind of check it again. I said, that's where the name of the podcast came from. And so that's one of my biggest fears is like leaving the door open. Someone came in, I'm never heard from again. So I'm giving this a 10 for that reason. And not only because there are people who are like this living in the world that aren't being treated appropriately. And unfortunately, something like this could happen again. And yeah, it's just very unsettling. I really don't think I'll be able to sleep tonight. This one's going to sit with me for a while. Yeah. And I'm there with you. I mean, I'm, I'm putting it at a 10 as well. 
And I feel like lately we've been ranking them pretty high, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know if maybe that's just because of how we're diving into them or if we're just picking cases that are unsettling. But this one is is definitely a 10 for me. And again, we've talked about it before, but it's normally it's like, you know, this person was targeting sex workers or, yeah. you know, this person not going to happen to me. Yeah, I don't live this lifestyle. And the scary thing to me about this is, again, the randomness, the just I checked the door. It was unlocked. Now I'm in your house. I've got a gun to your head and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm going to explore any dark thought that I'm curious about. And to me, that's absolutely terrifying. And then to think again that like not only were the the victims' homes random, but the victims themselves. You know, we're looking at children. We're looking at a six-year-old, a 22-month-old, to a 22-year-old woman, to a 51-year-old man. You know, it's across the board. It reminded me of kind of a mix between the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, who would just randomly break into people's homes, and then the Dahmer case. With the like drinking of the blood and the you know grinding up organs and entrails and stuff, it's like two of the scariest cases, the most unsettling ones that I've ever looked into, all rolled into like one ball. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a, that's a ten for me. If it, we did one through eleven, it'd be an eleven. <laughs> right. Know I, I mean? know. Sometimes I'm like, it's a twelve. It's really a twelve. Right. Or I give it, you know, a different rating based on like, you know, thrill factor. It's this, but this factor, not you know, it's not going to happen to me. But right. I mean, you yeah, yeah, you brought a heavy, heavy gory one. So I don't know if I should praise you, <laughs> applaud you, but uh, this is what our podcast is all about, John. You know, I don't ever set out to be like, I'm going to bring one that's like super disgusting. It, to me, it's more about like being interesting and or maybe mm-hmm. one that I haven't heard of before. Because, again, yeah. you know, you and I are both really into the subject matter. So if it's something that we haven't heard of, I'm assuming that it's something that, you know, probably the listeners haven't heard of. And so that's, I think, what draws me to this. So, you know, again, not setting out to be like, how can I make Olivia feel gross? But it's more like, hey, can you believe the story? Because I had no idea this ever happened, you know? Yeah. Well, that is where we fall on this week's deadbolt test. But as always, we want to know where does the vampire of Sacramento, Richard Trenton Chase, fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us at Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you are not in our Facebook group, come hang out with us. We're in there interacting every single day. We would love to hang out with you. I recently redid my office, posted some pictures for people's feedback. I got a lot of really good feedback. I got a lot of people being like, oh, it's super cluttered. You should do this. You should do that. And I don't think they <laughs> realized that I had just spent four hours reorganizing it. But there was a lot of really good suggestions, a lot of stuff that I'm going to be doing just because... We do this so much. I really want to enjoy the space that I'm doing it in. So if you left any feedback, uh, any tips or anything like that, just know that I I really, really appreciate it. So if you are not in our Facebook group, come hang out with us. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Olivia, this case, again, as we said, is particularly dark. I could use a pick-me-up. Do you have a five-star review for us? I do. And this week's five-star review comes from True Crime Junkie. They said, I absolutely love this podcast. I'm so glad I found you guys. I actually did find y'all as a recommendation from listening to Dateline. You guys are amazing and hilarious, and I love how much detail y'all put into your stories. Thank y'all so much and keep it up. I need more episodes to listen to. Love you both. Thank you, True Crime Junkie, for leaving us that five-star review. You know, reach over on the socials and let us know who you are so we can send you some cool stuff. Yeah, definitely. True Crime Junkie, thank you for taking the time. We love you too. We love that you listen. We really, really appreciate it. And this is kind of exactly what we're talking about, right? Leaving those reviews for us every week, they help us get into other shows' recommendations and allows people to find us. So if you have left us that review, 
Thank you so much for doing that. So glad you took time away from Dateline to check us out. We really appreciate it. Reach out to us. Let us know again. You can find us on Instagram, Check the Locks Pod, Twitter, Check the Locks, or if you're in our Facebook group, reach out, let us know there. If you are not a social person, that's totally fine. Head over to Check the Locks Pod, hit that email button, send us an email. We would love to send you some stuff. Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? They need to hop on over to the Apple Podcast app, go to our home show page, scroll all the way down where you see all five stars, click all five stars, and tell us what you think about the podcast. Yes, exactly what Olivia said. Head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us those reviews. We would love to hear what you think. And if you need a cheat code, head into the show description. There is a link to Apple Podcasts. You can leave us the review there. We would love to hear what you think. Hey, Olivia, guess what? We have a voicemail. We got a voicemail. Yeah, yeah. Hello, my name's Mary Sue, and I want to say you guys do such a good job on the show. I have been a fan since the day you started this podcast, and I cannot wait for Mondays and driving to work so that I can listen to your show. Um, You guys are now a staple in my week, Mondays and Wednesdays, and I'm always super excited to get in my car and turn it on. Olivia, I have been a fan of you since Married at First Sight, and I have to give you a huge kudos to running a marathon. I cannot even imagine I've done a 5K, but never a marathon. So huge kudos to that. Thank you for what you guys do. You're amazing and keep doing what you're doing. Mary Sue, you are great and amazing yourself. Thank you for leaving a voicemail. And thanks for listening to us on your drives to work on Mondays and Wednesdays. That's like huge to be part of someone's like every day. You know, and if I can run a marathon, you can run a marathon, Mary Sue. So put your goals out there and hit the pavement. Yes, Mary Sue, I'm going to tell you not to run a marathon. Go watch somebody (laughs) run a marathon. That's my that's that's my perspective on it. But exactly what Olivia said, the fact that we get to hang out with you every Monday and Wednesday as you're driving into work. That's one of my favorite things to hear, because I feel like we are getting to spend time with the people who are listening to the show, you know. And yes. it's just, it's super cool. It's super cool to think that like somebody's like, oh man, Monday is going to suck. At least I get to listen to this podcast on the way in. So to be able to like do that for somebody, it's just awesome. And we're so glad that you're enjoying it. And I think what makes these voicemails so enjoyable is that they're so personal. Like we get to hear their voice and, you know, they hear our voice every week. And so it's like, oh, like we really have a listener. <laughs> and I think that sounds silly, but it's like having a conversation with them. You know, it's kind of nice. I, re- I really love the voicemails. I know. I really love them, too. And as always, we would love to hear from you and Mary Sue. Reach out to us. Again, you can reach out to us on the socials if you're in the Facebook group, anything like that. Reach out to us. I would love to send you some stuff. I know we talked about it last week, but these voicemails are just so much fun for us to get. And we love sending people stuff. So reach out to us. Let us know that it's you, where to send some stuff. We would love to get you some goodies out in the mail And if you want to leave a voicemail, again, head over to checkthelockspod.com. You can click the little microphone in the bottom right corner. Or as always, there is a link in the show description to the episode that you're listening to now. It's a cheat code. Hit that button. Leave us a voicemail. We would love to hear from you. And as always, if you are interested in supporting Check the Locks and helping us keep the lights on, you can do so by becoming a patron. You can head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks, sign up. We've got a bunch of great tiers. We got stickers, mugs, exclusive t-shirts, all sorts of stuff. We're also working on some exclusive content that we'll be releasing just through Patreon for those patrons who support us. So if you can't support us, we would be so grateful. If you cannot financially support us, that makes total sense. I say this every week, but I mean it from the bottom of our heart. 
listening to the show and hanging out with us every Monday and Wednesday means just as much. And sharing the show with your friends means even more. So if you are listening, if you are letting people know about what we do and what you like about it, just know that from the bottom of our hearts, we appreciate more than we can put into words. So that is all that we have for you for this week's episode. Make sure that you are subscribing to Check the Locks on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. We will see you next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you again next week.